Welcome to the Control-Alt-Azure podcast. I'm Yusip. And I'm Tobias. Join us for a journey in the cloud. Hey there, and welcome back to another episode of Control-Alt-Azure. This episode is sponsored by ScriptRunner, and ScriptRunner is a great solution to centrally manage PowerShell scripts and standardize and automate IT tasks via a graphical user interface for help desk or end users. So check that out on scriptrunner.com. I am Tobias, and again, I'm back with UC Aboyne. What's up? Hey, Tobias. It's a great day today. I have finally reached inbox zero on one of my emails. Hold so, on, let me fix that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Uh, so, so on 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 my daily life, I operate around five sort of main email addresses and calendars. One for the kids, and and a couple of for the different businesses I'm involved in, and one private, and so on. And I've I've sort of given up with trying to get to inbox zero any longer because the in, email just keeps coming and coming and coming. It never ends. But I, I wanted to experience this feeling of joy once more for 2022. So one email inbox is fully empty. Everything processed, nothing waiting, no pending tasks, nothing. The others not doing so well, but I'll, I'll get to those next week. How, how is it for you? Are, are you one of those people who just keep all emails in the inbox and you have like 550? 5,000 emails, all flagged and tagged. I, I'm a, a person of order in a lot of things in my life. I like structure. I like order. So obviously with my inbox, uh, it is very orderly. Um, I have perhaps 15 common categories that I automatically tag different emails with, depending if it's cost alerts, uh, monitor, if it's a security incident or whatever. I, I classify them, I categorize them, and then depending on the severity, I pin them at the top. If it's something that needs immediate attention, or if not, I put them into a folder so they go out of sight because then they're out of mind. And so I, I do have a, a pretty structured inbox, but in, so, so my actual inbox folder is usually empty, uh, not because it automatically ends up that way, but because the only things that do end up there are things that I need to read. Um, Everything else, I either just delete, archive, or automatically move away. So I, for me, inbox zero is to have my actual inbox folder at zero, but I get maybe 200 monitoring alerts every day from my systems. So I will never achieve like an inbox zero where I actually read everything. Uh, I can still mark my monitoring folder as read, and obviously they're also with different um, severities and, and categories. So anything critical would end up in the in the inbox. So yeah, I'm I'm, I'm one of those who uh, really likes to structure my day and and all the work that I do. So obviously my inbox follows that pattern. So that that what's inbox zero for me? That's you know reaching my inbox folder to zero, but then I have different folders with less severe categories. And it's okay if it says 2,000 or 200 in there because I will never actually read them unless I need to go back and find something. That makes perfect sense. I, I, I think I have some rules as well that, that automatically moves certain emails from different distribution lists and whatnot away from the inbox. 
Alrighty. So, so what else have you been up to lately besides being organized? So following that pattern, but perhaps more so following the episode that we had last week about IoT, uh, I dug out all my devices. I found them in my drawers and I started to connect them back um, together, ensure that Wi-Fi worked on the Raspberry Pi devices. And then, and then I deploy them across my garden. So perhaps it's a bit too cold for them right now because these are not really shielded and they're not weatherproof and they're definitely not uh, winterproof. Uh, by any extent, but right now it's sunny outside. So uh, the last few days has been okay. So I wanted to see how they behave and communicate. Uh, so they're now already connected using .NET 6, which I kind of upgraded my old apps. They're running on Raspberry Pi devices and sending metrics and events to my services in Azure. So now I can collect all types of data, the moisture, the temperature, um, you know, what time of day, of course, uh, I take a picture of the grass, like I mentioned in the previous episode, uh, but none of these things are really weatherproof. So I, I could only let it run for about two hours. Then I had to take them in again because at the uh, at the evening, we get the dew, I think you call it in English. And then everything just becomes wet. Um, and, and right now, this time of year, everything becomes really wet. Uh, so I, I had to bring everything inside again. But it works. Everything is connected. I wanted to test the Wi-Fi connectability so that everything could reach my Wi-Fi in the garden. Now that I know that it can, it, you know, the next step would be to kind of weatherproof that. So a bit analog in the sense that I'm doing something outside in the garden, but perhaps very digital at the same time because it's a connected garden uh, in a sense. So I hope to be able to automate the watering of my plants, uh, both the ones in the greenhouse and the ones outside. And I know there are big systems you can buy from big industry manufacturers that already can automate most of the watering in your garden. But because I can do it myself and I know how to do it, and I think it's a, a fun challenge to spend time with because I try to involve my kids as well. I have a four-year-old who's you know, eagerly following me along in the garden. So you know, I, I really love seeing how she picks things up and also gets equally excited when I say, well, you could get this device to get uh, sending a signal to that other device that you see over there. And then that thing will make sure the water comes to the plant. And uh, so we plant a seed and then she's super excited every morning to go out and see if there's actually now a plant from the seed. Um, so, I, so I think it's also a fun project to do together. Yep, sounds, sounds like fun for sure. Uh, once once I, I get to move to the new house, we are going to have a small garden as well. So I, I might pick your brain later on on, on what, what sort of devices to get and, and what sort of <laughs> approach to have for the IoT things. So today, this is episode 120, Azure Updates. So we do these sort of Azure Updates, maybe maybe once a month, uh, we gather all of the announcements, all of the updates, and, and, and we pick and choose the most interesting ones from there. So I think I have about four updates on my list. Uh, Toby, I think you have maybe five. So would you like to start first? What's interesting, what's, what's recently became available? Yeah, sure. Uh, so I, I think most of the updates today is actually uh, fairly quick. Um, the, the first one on my list is something that went now into GA and generally available. It's Azure Key Vault that increased the service limits for all the customers. So subscription-wide limit and per vault limit has been doubled, right? And I think this is extremely important uh, to know about because I myself, I've hit these limits so many times. Um, I mean, we operate a distributed, globally distributed 
a SaaS application, it is running hundreds of containers. There's a plethora of functions in different regions. And, you know, a lot of these things are, are hammering different endpoints. And like a key component of all the things we, we use in our operations is the key vault. What, and we use that to kind of secure and protect the data that we have um, and, and the, the keys and, and sensitive things. And one thing we quickly realized a long time ago is the key vault is the bottleneck. Whatever design we make, if we rely on the key vault, that's the bottleneck. So we can scale everything that we have, you know, not infinitely, but we can scale it up and scale it wide a lot. But if all of them go back to the same one key vault, that's your bottleneck. So it doesn't matter how enterprise grade you make your architecture and how globally distributed you can handle, you know, upscaling whatever amount of requests you get. If you still rely on a single instance of Azure Key Vault, you're going to be in trouble. Uh, so now we actually have multiple Key Vaults with a replicated set of, of secrets and keys across some of them, depending on uh, exactly what they need to do and, and also depending on data sovereignty. But this update specifically is about these limits now being doubled. So uh, for example, a GET request for secret um, or or like getting a RSA 2048-bit software key, you receive 2,000 GET transactions per 10 second um, in the past, and now you get 4,000, right? So per 10 seconds. So if you really operate with high throughput and you have a lot of requests, you're going to see that, you know, going from 2,000 to 4,000, uh, included requests, uh, so essentially the limit is just doubled, it's going to make quite the difference. So it's super important to know about. Um, you can also see your current usage, because obviously when you hear this, you might also think, okay, if there, I didn't know there was a limit of 2,000 requests per 10 seconds even. How do I see if I reached it? So you can see your current usage from the Azure portal, Key Vault, Overview, Monitoring tab, you can see total requests, average latency, success ratio, and things like that. And you can also drill in more from your key vault and then go to insights. And then you have overview failures operations. So you have a bunch of different things you can take a look at to, to see the overall health and failures of your key vault. Um, for me, it became clear that the key vault was an issue um, you know, a long time ago because we could see all the failures coming in uh, where our requests essentially were throttled by the key vault because we were making too many. Um, so very welcome update, increased service limits for all Key Vault customers. I have to admit, I've never really hit the limits myself, but at the same time, I'm not running hundreds of containers that need to ping back and forth with everything. So this definitely feels like a welcomed addition on the, on the limits for Key Vault. Uh, on my side, and this is something that's generally available now, uh, updates to Azure Backup specifically for hybrid backups. So this is interesting. There's a couple of security-related updates now for those scenarios where you're utilizing the Azure Recovery Service Agent or Azure Backup Server or even the System Center Data Protection Manager. So, so all three of these are, are used in scenarios where you typically have on-premises or, or multi-cloud deployments of VMs, and you are protecting those VMs by automatically replicating whatever changes happen in said VMs to a different location. So you might have a hot or cold standby for those VMs. So in, in, in order to sort of secure this setup 
further, uh, these updates that are now generally available uh, include stuff like if you try to unregister a protected server from not being protected anymore. So this is specific, I recall, for System Center Data Protection Manager, DPM. Uh, you protect the server, but then at times you sort of need to unprotect the server. And this can now be blocked depending on the scenario. There is also a free retention of backup data if the VM or the data the VM is utilizing is in a soft delete state. So often you delete something, but then you change your mind later on and, and you recover from that soft deletion. So these are awfully specific and I would say incremental updates. And, and nowadays, I, I don't think I need to work any longer in scenarios where I need to build a sort of hybrid backup anymore. I do realize that still happens quite a bit, but more and more, it's, it's nowadays becoming more common to lift and shift those VMs to the cloud and then protect them in the cloud without the hybrid capabilities not needed any longer. All right, that makes sense. Uh, so the next thing on my list is a preview feature. And that is a new feature in cost analysis. So in Azure, where you have your cost analysis, you now have a preview of the new cost analysis. And there you have multitasking capabilities. Um, so uh, it's a new tabbed experience. I took this for our spin and I checked it out. There are some things I like about it. There are also some things now missing that existed in the old one. So the new tab experience is used to streamline analysis and you can kind of drill into costs a little differently. Uh, so it starts with a list of the built-in views and then you can open multiple tabs to explore different aspects of costs at the same time. Whereas in the past, you had to open multiple browser tabs and kind of navigate and do different filters and different things. And for me, operating across many subscriptions and, and having a plethora of management groups and things like that, whenever I changed my view, it had to kind of start over and aggregate all the numbers and data for all of those subscriptions I had selected. So now with the tabbed view, we can kind of open them and then just switch between the tabs to take a look at different views. So I really like that. Um, so it's really beneficial. And uh, I mean, I have my production systems and they require monitoring and not just the technical monitoring, but you know the, the cost impact being a, a big thing and budget limits. So this new experience already helps me a lot to understand the bigger picture. Um, and like I said, you can try this out directly from the Azure portal right now. You're going to see cost analysis for your subscription, but also cost analysis preview. So you can select that one. Uh, what I'm really curious about is something called cost insights. So I click this and it says your subscription is now set up for anomaly detection for cost, right? So it provides a highlight of your cost and usage patterns along with recommendations to increase your savings, but then also comes with anomaly detection now. So I'm, I'm not entirely sure to what extent this anomaly detection uh, will discover things, but I suspect it's going to be things like spikes for a certain service. If it detects your normal pattern is that you spend 5,000 euros a month on log analytics, 5,000 a month on app services, and now log analytics all of a sudden is 12,000 instead of five. That's an anomaly. And you may or may not have budget alerts set up, uh, but with the anomaly detection, I expect that this will be taken care of somehow, maybe flagging it, maybe emailing about it, maybe highlighting it somehow. Uh, 
Um, so like I said, I tried it out, but when I click the anomaly detection, it says the data will be ready within 24 hours. So I clicked it maybe 12 hours ago. I still don't have my data. So I suspect when I get back, uh, you know, tomorrow in a few days, maybe there will be some more data for me to take a look there in the cost insights. So super welcome changes. There's a couple of things I miss with the new cost analysis. And one of the things that I do a lot is I group by um, a specific tag. So I want to list all the resources. Then um, I either want to group by service type or by a specific tag because we can also put tags on some of the resources saying what cost center, what department, what environment, what type of customer, what type of container, for example, what type of whatever it is we're running. And uh, that does not you know, easily distinguish from just a name or from the service type. So with the tags, I can really drill down to things, but the new cost center or the cost analysis does not have support for doing that with the tags. So I'm still jumping between the new and the previous experience. And I really hope they don't cut that from the cost analysis because I use that every single day. Um, but on the other hand, if that gets cut, the cost API will return all that data anyway. So we can just build something in, in a matter of two hours, we would have an API that gives us the same data. It's just very convenient to have it right now. So definitely take a look at that. It's still in preview, new features for cost analysis, and you can do multitasking stuff with the tabbed experience and kind of get some new insights and new views and then the cost anomaly detection. Pretty cool. I, I think for the past 12 months, at least, every time I open cost management, there's a new pop-up saying, well, there's this and this new preview here. <laughs> Maybe you should go to the cost analysis preview side. And I'm never sure if it's something new or if it's something I just haven't seen before, but it's been available for six months already. Uh, while, while you were mentioning cost insights, I did open my Azure portal. I went to cost analysis preview and I, I as well do have the see insights button, but it immediately says check back tomorrow. <laughs> you are not going mm -hmm. to get the <laughs> analysis today. And this sort of reminds me that the cloud is somebody else's computer. I'm fairly certain there's a Windows 10 box running in, in West Europe that has a <laughs> scheduled task at 1 a.m. And, and it simply runs a batch file that, that goes through the insights for your tenant, my tenant, and a few others who click that already. And then it's spitting out the results at 9 o'clock. We will see tomorrow how this is going to look. For me, the next update, this is something in preview as well. Managed certificate support for Azure API management. And the, the whole certificate approach in Azure has been a, a bit messy in the past couple of years. For web apps, uh, if you wanted to use Let's Encrypt certificates, it's been a fairly cumbersome process to get it right. And now something like this is built in to Azure API management. So what you can do, you can have your custom domain that is going to be the endpoint for your Azure API management. And you can secure that with an SSL uh, certificate. And there's auto renew built into that as well. But I, I went through the docs and the guidance on this and it doesn't say where it's actually sourcing the certificate? Is it, is it GoDaddy? Is it Let's Encrypt? Is it something else? I'm not sure. Uh, and in order to get this running, you do need access to your DNS. So you need to add a TXT and a CNAME record 
to prove that, yes, I do own this domain. I'd like to get the SSL here as well. But this is a free certificate. So it's a nice addition to securing API management when you use custom domains. Obviously, if you are not using a custom domain, you, you're using the one that it's, it, it provides by default, then you do not need this feature. All right. Sounds good. One thing that kind of ties into security and, and identities, not so much certificates, but another preview feature. So if you use Azure Cache for Redis, you will be happy to know that now in preview, there's support for managed identity. So when I use Azure Cache for Redis uh, last time, it was connection string based. You had to, as usual, plug in your connection string to it uh, from somewhere and plug your credentials in. And, and then you could connect to it. Now, with the preview feature, there's support for managed identity. So I really like that. Uh, so identity is kind of established through Azure AD and both system assigned and user assigned identities are supported. So that kind of allows uh, the service to establish trusted access to the storage for things like including data persistence and import export of the cache data. And, and we kind of see this now uh, across more services in Azure every single day moving to this kind of passwordless or credentialless authentication based on identity rather than a connection string uh, or a key value like client ID and secret. So I really like this. You know, I, I think this is also important because I've had dialogues with folks recently and, and recently being the last one year where we talked about specifically Azure Cache for Redis and the lack of managed identity at some point, uh, but also other caching solutions and services in Azure where managed identity did not yet exist. So I just want to highlight that this is coming to more and more services. And if a service you're using now do not have support for it, I would expect that you know they're doing everything they can on the Microsoft side to make sure that managed identities gets access or, or gets integrated into that service as well. So this is another proof in the you know line of their dedication to get this kind of passwordless authentication for services up and running. And I really like it. Uh, so I will definitely go and change some of the things I have running now with Azure Cache for Redis. While my connection strings currently are safe and sound inside of a key vault, only accessible uh, by services running from within the same protected VNet where there's no inbound connections allowed, you know, and based on identity to access the key vault, then you can grab the connection string and connect to Azure Cache for Redis. Now we can eliminate that entire step to go to the key vault and get it and this and this. We can just say, here's the endpoint. And the endpoint is not really sensitive. We can just put that in the app settings or as a container environment variable, whatever needs to access it. And then say, just connect using the current identity because then my identity in the container and my web app and whatever could be a user assigned identity. And I can just grant that permission to my Azure Cache for Redis and voila, that works. So I'm, I'm super excited about that as well. Moving definitely in the right direction here. I'm really happy to see this, especially especially the system assigned managed identity support for Redis. So this is something I need to configure next week as well. Uh, on my end, uh, Azure DevOps gets a lot of updates and all generally available. But before I sort of go through some of these, Toby, do you prefer Azure DevOps or GitHub? Or are you one of those people who still run Team Foundation Server on your own server underneath your, your desk? <laughs> uh, very relatable. Uh, I used to run a subversion server under my desk, but I do not. Uh, everything I do and that we do collectively uh, in our team today is, is cloud-based. 
So no, no actual servers. Well, we're running the cloud to someone else's servers. Um, I don't distinguish between GitHub or Azure DevOps and what do I like. I just look at the requirements, what's best for business, what is most cost effective, what will work for the current team. How can we take the requirements we have to build the things we need to build uh, and use the tools available to do that? And two of those tools being Azure DevOps, of course, and the other one being GitHub. Um, so you will never see me engage in a dialogue saying, like the browser wars, like Firefox is better than Opera or IE or Edge, you know, stuff like this, or Android is, Android is better than iPhone or uh, in this case, Azure DevOps versus GitHub. To me, that's not the question. Do you choose one or the other? The question is, how can we use both of these to make sure that everything for our team and our business actually can scale and can work um, in, in the best possible way? And, and if it goes in favor of one of them, let's do that. I, of course, am very opinionated about Azure DevOps and GitHub both because I have different use cases for both of them. So, But that would probably be a pretty long discussion if we want to drill down into all the use cases who is it better for? What should you do? What should you consider? Uh, so your short question got a little longer answer. Uh, <laughs> but, but the super short answer is, as always, it depends. And don't select between one or the other. You can complement uh, your solutions using both. That, that, that makes sense. Uh, it's, it's been a while since I last did an Azure DevOps or TFS or VSS migration, but that was always painful. So that's that's one upside I see with GitHub. I do not have to do those migrations anymore. But there's a lot of updates for Azure DevOps now. So so definitely there's still a user base for Azure DevOps, uh, both for those instances you install in your own servers or the cloud-based one. And, and let me highlight a few of these. Uh, the first one is the capability to assign an Azure AD group as the Azure DevOps admin role. And this is something that I've been needing for five years at least. Every time you set up a new Azure DevOps organization, you sort of go, yeah, let's add the whole IT admin group here as admins. No, no, you cannot do that. You have to do that individually. And nobody knows all the names anyway. So that's one. The second one interesting here is that uh, there's a deprecation schedule for Windows Server 2016 hosted images on Azure pipelines. And the schedule is November 2022. So Windows 2016 uh, mainstream support is ending at the end of January, so right about now. But Microsoft is giving us 10 more months to migrate away from those old hosted images. Uh, beyond this, I, I feel many of the updates are, are fairly incremental, like post a neutral status to GitHub when a build is skipped. Perhaps this is useful. I've never needed this myself. So make sure to check the uh, show notes uh, to get the link because there's about 10 additional small updates to Azure Pipelines and reporting on Azure DevOps. I'm glad I didn't take that update and talked about that because I would have so many things to say. <laughs> Like this neutral thing, it's super important for a lot of things I do. Uh, let's keep that for a different episode. Maybe we talk about uh, you know managing code and projects with uh, Azure DevOps and GitHub in, in one episode. So the the next, I, I really have one more update, which is about Security Center or Microsoft Defender for Cloud. But before that, I just want to sneak in a super, super, super small one, but very important for, for myself 
might be important for someone else. It is now in GA. It is a one minute frequency for log alerts. So log alerts in Azure Monitor, you define the frequency down to one minute now, as opposed to perhaps five minutes. And this is important for some of the critical workloads I have. So I want something, as soon as it is discovered, I want to fire the alert, like immediately. And usually when you have the five minute kind of cadence, you could get some something happening or you could have whatever alerts you have, but it doesn't get sent until five minutes later or on a five minute interval. So it could be anywhere from zero to five minutes. Now we have zero to one minute. So I think that's important. It's important for me, at least, in, in how I operate my things. Some things I need to get an immediate alert, and the sooner I can take action, the better, because any downtime or any service de degradation is, of course, not very good. You can now evaluate every minute to check for the condition and then essentially reducing the time to fire a log alert. So super small update, uh, but important to know about if you monitor stuff in Azure. Now, the final update on my side is like I mentioned, Microsoft Defender for Cloud, the previous security center. There's a bunch of things coming out in, in January, and we could probably spend an entire episode just talking about them. So I just want to kind of highlight the, the high-level things that has changed in this area, because I know a lot of people gave feedback that they appreciated this, and sometimes it's hard to keep up with the cadence of updates coming out in Azure, specifically if you work with security or you're operating things and you need to stay on top of it you know, the release cadence of new features and capabilities is so high, it's very difficult to keep up. So we try to take the most important things and just, um, you know, throw them in the, into the update episode here. So for Security Center, you have now a preview feature, which is auto-provision log analytics agents to Azure Arc-enabled machines, okay? So if you use Azure Arc, now you can auto-provision log analytics agents onto them, which is, of course, good. The next thing is deprecating the recommendation to classify sensitive data in SQL databases. So Microsoft kind of removed the recommendation for sensitive data in your SQL database should be classified uh, as part of like a major overhaul of how Defender for Cloud identifies and protects their uh, the sensitive information and data. So, um, and, and we're going to see this more and more that they deprecate specific recommendations and they introduce new ones. Why am I mentioning that? Well, if you also operate things the way I do, and you have a, a million different signals and alerts, some of those signals might get triggered on the actual name of the recommendation or the name of an alert. In this case, they uh, deprecated the recommendation, so it goes away. Sometimes they will rename a recommendation. And then perhaps your email alert rule or whatever it is that you set up may not match anymore. So it's important to, uh, to know. Also, another update there is communication with suspicious domain alerts expanded to include now the uh, known log for shell related domains. Um, so that's an, another recommendation, um, an alert type that they added. So um, these things are part of the uh, Mitra, uh, Mitra uh, tactics as well. Uh, another update is copy alert JSON. So you have a copy button now uh, added to the security alert details pane. So if you have an alert that fired and you click it, you now have copy alert JSON. And then you think, why would I want to get the JSON when I have the, the pane? Well, you might have a SOC team. Uh, you might have a, a team of security analysts. Uh, you might have a resource owner or a developer or you know, the technical operations or anyone who needs to take a look at the alert, what just happened. You click copy alert JSON and you get you know, the full alert with the details uh, just like if you click the button, view full details. 
so that's pretty convenient and I've used it already. It's pretty, pretty good actually. And uh, definitely helpful. Now, I don't have a lot more, but I, there's a few more things on the security center or pardon me, that's the old language, Microsoft Defender for Cloud. And one is the renamed recommendations. I mentioned before that we now could have some renamed recommendations. And there are actually two of them uh, that I actively use as well uh, that now have been renamed. And I think, again, this is important if you have documentation internally or if you have any system relying on the actual name of that recommendation. So the two recommendations is uh, the number one, vulnerabilities in running container images should be remediated, powered by Qualys. That's the old name. It's now running container images should have vulnerability findings resolved. Small change, but important. Uh, the other update there and renamed is diagnostic logs should be enabled in app services, which is now instead diagnostic logs in app services should be enabled. So just kind of turn that around. Super small update, but I already see one of my systems are flagging it saying, hey, you're, you're failing this because we cannot find it anymore because my system checks something and then it matches that with the security center data and it says now it cannot find it um, because the, the name is different. So obviously don't use the name, use the alert ID or the, the recommendation ID or something else instead. And then there's a bunch of other things, but the two final remaining things on the security side that they updated that I think can be beneficial is they added a, a new workbook called Active Alert. So you go to Microsoft Defender for Cloud workbooks and you will now see something called Active Alert. And we really like that as well. So the Active Alert workbook kind of allows you to view the unified dashboard of the aggregated alerts by severity, by type, by tag, by Mitri attack tactics, uh, or your location, or, or the location of the, the alert. So it's pretty cool. So you know, I've, I've built my own dashboards and my own workbooks for a lot of things. This way, Microsoft is kind of being proactive and say, you know what, we built one for you. That might be useful. Here it is. You can take it, you can modify it, you can save a copy, you can create your own based on that. So this is just another step in the line of, of um, you know, really convenient updates. And the absolutely final, this is the final update I'm going to say, and then I'm going to not let your ears bleed anymore. A uh, system update recommendation has been added to the government cloud. And this is important because this can impact your uh, government cloud subscriptions secure score. Um, so hopefully the change will lead to a decreased score and hopefully in the sense that then it actually works. Uh, but it's possible that the recommendation um, you know, might result in an increased score in some cases. That's what Microsoft says. Um, but I think it's actually a very good thing to be aware of if you're operating with the government cloud and, and you take seriously on the different secure scores and, thing, and, and things like that. If your secure score changes and you don't know why, maybe you can check if the system update recommendation has been added. Um, and I think the, the full name is system updates should be installed on your machines. And that's available now in all the government clouds. That was the end of my update. I, I think in the future, we are going to need an Azure security update episode because it seems <laughs> every time we go through the updates, Microsoft Defender products, they get the most updates out of everything. So it's a lot of new stuff in there, yeah. Indeed, indeed. So the last one on my side, and this is generally available, uh, there's a new and improved alert rule creation experience. And I've had this for a couple of weeks already in preview now. 
So when you're creating in Azure portal, when you're creating a new alert, it's now broken into smaller steps, logical steps, making it easier to follow at the same time. So previously, it was often this, this one pager with a lot of choices. And now that's broken down into multiple sub pages. So I really like this because creating those ad hoc alerts that, hey, it would be useful to know about this in the future. It's for less technical users, I feel this is easier to, to understand and to create things. Alrighty, I, I think these were all the updates we had for now. The, the last bit we have is the unexpected question. And Toby, I do have an interesting question for you. Okay. So, so this is, this is um, a slightly more complex question. So anybody listening on this now, focus on this. Uh, so Toby, what's your take on this? Some recent studies, starting from 2015 or so, show that the moon rock, the rock samples collected with the Apollo missions, uh, and, and then they did experiments on those. The studies show that the compressional velocity speed is similar to cheese, meaning that moon rock or lunar rock has a seismic wave speed of 1.8 kilometers per second. The seismic wave speed, I think it's, it's also called the primary wave speed. And a provolone cheese from Italy has a seismic wave speed of 1.83 kilometers per <laughs> second, so almost equal. But the moon is not made of cheese, but it has these cheese-like properties. What should we think about this? Uh, okay. Yeah, that is an unexpected question for sure. Um, <laughs> So you said lunar rock has a seismic wave speed of whatever, whatever. Yeah. And a seismic so, so, wave speed. I mean, I'm not a scientist, but I, I'm thinking this is how you measure sound. So, it, so the moon sounds like a cheese. Is that what we're saying? I, I don't think it's sound. I, I think it's more like uh, gravity, or if if you have like an earthquake, how fast the the effect travels through the rock. So it's the same for this specific type of cheese and lunar rock. Okay, so any type of seismic wave speed, really. Okay. Yeah. Um, well, it's. I mean, the evidence are in front of you. The moon is made out of cheese. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or, or the provolone cheese from Italy is actually made of moon rock. <laughs> ah, that it's be... got to be one of the got to be one of the two, right? <laughs> exactly. I I did find. Um, that the, the table were the tested against all sorts of different cheese, but the provolone cheese was <laughs> the closest one <laughs> to lunar it's rock. A, it's a funny thing to test against. I mean, there are so many things I, I would consider testing against, but just specific types of cheese is perhaps not one of the things I would have tested, but it's a funny one. Um, so, I mean, so I think your final question was, what should we think about this, this finding? Uh, so obviously, um, either the moon is made out of cheese, um, which if you believe how, how certain people make up their, their mind about, uh, you know, reality in our world, uh, they read something, a one-liner, and they put that into their own context. Obviously, you can do that here. Um, but I, I think that's going to be my final answer. The moon is made out of cheese. So now yes, we need yeah. to go to the moon, and next time we need to bring one of those fondue kits so we can just scoop a little bit up and put into the fondue and then we can have a cheese fondue. 
we can we can bake the bread at Earth before we travel to the moon. So we have somewhat fresh bread when we get there, depending on how, I don't know how, like, in, how do you call it, interlunar travel is? Yeah. And these days, but I'm, if we talk to Elon and say, hey, we want to go eat cheese at the moon, I'm sure he's going to say I'm, I'm all in uh, and, and give us a rocket or something. Right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can, I, can, I can buy into this one. And, and perhaps while at it, uh, uh, bring some provolone cheese as well, just, just in case this experiment is not working while on the moon's surface, at least have some proper cheese. But this weekend, I am going to do some grocery shopping and I'm thinking of getting some provolone cheese just to sort of get the feeling that, okay, so this is almost equal to a lunar rock. So now I get to enjoy this. The seismic wave speed is the same. Yes, <laughs> yes. That's I wonder the thing. if that equals taste. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I hope not. Alrighty, this was fun as always. Thank you for joining us. This was episode 120 Azure Updates, and we hope you join us next week. Bye. All right, see you then. Thank you for tuning in to the Control-Alt-Azure podcast. Find out more and read the show notes on controlaltazure.com. Stay tuned.